You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show, which was recorded at the Place Hotel in York Place in Edinburgh. They very kindly agreed to give me some recording space uh, to do this interview, so please return the favour and patronise them with your patronage if you find yourself in Edinburgh and have a bit of cash to splash on an extremely nice hotel. So welcome to the Comedian's Comedian podcast, the show that likes to pick the brains of your favourite comedians and find out how they do their jobs, how they live their lives and how they cope with all of the above and more. So today my guest is Zoe Coombs-Ma. I've been meaning to get Zoe on the show for a very long time because she has such an incredibly fresh take on comedy and what's going on in comedy at the moment and what's going on in the world. She's an incredibly engaging and very, very vivid political uh, performer. And she is also an incredibly gifted performer. Honestly, I said so in the programme notes and I will reiterate it here. I saw her show Trigger Warning uh, at the festival just gone this year in Edinburgh and I... I've never seen I, I, that show has been she's taken that around the festival circuit a good few times and it hinges on her creation Dave about whom we will we'll find out a lot more Dave is uh, a hack straight white male comic character that she performs after the con- at the end of her show I have never seen a faster and more confident standing ovation from everyone there the room erupted so funny was she and so just to- note a note perfect performance which managed to be so flexible and funny and kind of virtuoso as well the the speed with and the dynamism with which she flipped in between the different characters as we will talk about all of these things but i want you to know if you started this one not knowing zoe's name then you should absolutely listen on because i am so so excited about her work and i am really really pleased to bring you this conversation we get into some really good shit pretty soon so uh pay close attention and enjoy pay close who says that at the beginning of their uh <laughs> podcast hey listen if you're driving pay close attention to the road but really try not to wool gather during this one this is zoe coombs ma <laughs> 
So I should probably start by, I'm going to try not to gush too much. I saw Dave a couple of years ago here at the festival, at the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah. Um, and I saw Trigger Warning finally about a week ago or so. And you'll know that oh, because... Oh, late to the, bu- late to the very train. Late to the, well, I was early to Dave. And then I saw you were doing another Dave show and I, I didn't prioritize it the right way. And then that was like the explosive Dave show that won <laughs> yeah. everything and... So yeah, you were both early and late. Yes, that yeah. One, I'm, I'm, well, thanks for coming up. Oh, no worries. Um, and you'll know, you'll know how much I love trigger warning because I probably ill-advisedly sent you an extraordinarily gushing <laughs> message afterwards. I think I was among the first people to stand up in one of. I've described it to people and said it was one of the most confident standing ovations I've ever seen at a show. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Whereby, like, everyone knows we are absolutely all standing up. So as soon as you finished, everyone was on their feet. Did you come incredible. to the last one? Did you come to the I one with to all the, the, the walkouts? I came to the penultimate one, and I, me and several members of my household sent the rest of our household to the one with all the walkouts. Oh. And they came back, and we said, did you love it? And they said, we loved it. Loads of people hated it. There were, like, <laughs> m- m- they described three mass walkouts. Tons of walkouts. It was so funny because, like, I've done that show a lot, and uh, like over a hundred times, I've done that show, and um, and I, I still really enjoy doing because it it's it's still it's actually about a seventy minute show, and it's like squashed into. If I'm lucky, if it goes really well, I can get it into sixty minutes. But it's always just like such a challenge to try to fit it into seventy minutes. So I always I still find it interesting, but I love it when stuff like really properly goes wrong. And that night. <laughs> so funny because there were tons of walkouts and that's fine like I've had that if you don't want if you don't want to be watching that show you really don't want to be (laughs) watching that show but no one could find the door (laughs) (laughs) it was just like all these and I could see them like struggling to find the door and so I was just it was quite lovely actually because I just was like the the final interaction with them was like them trying to walk out of my show and then me having to kind of like quite politely help them find their way out of my show that they hated (laughs) be like oh madam it's just to the left we had to I I had to call an amnesty like part way through I was like guys if you want to leave get out now because it's so hard to find the door and I might not be able to help you yes and if they're presumably if they're thinking like you say if they don't if they if it's the wrong show it's just a million percent the wrong show oh it's so wrong yeah so yeah. can you tell us for people who haven't seen it or who don't know your work can you just give us a quick I mean is it, I don't know if it's possible no not really yeah can history? they give a quick summary um yeah. Uh, but, uh, ooh, uh, I play a, uh, a male comedian. Uh, it's it's hard to sum up, but it's it's I, it's a drag show essentially. So I play like a really uh, aggressively mediocre male stand-up comic, and in Trigger Warning, um, uh, it's that he has been publicly shamed on Twitter by feminists and has had to give up stand-up and become a gollier clown. And then without, <laughs> he's been and, silenced, literally yes. silenced. Yeah. And without, I mean, it is like I think you said Inception at one point. It's like it's like feminist clown Inception. Yeah. Like, it, do you know what I mean? It, that's that's the initial narrative. And then, and I guess, is that show at the end of its touring life at the moment? Are you doing it in more places? It is. I'm doing a couple of little tours. Like, I'm doing it in uh, Brisbane. I think I might be doing it in New Zealand next year. So there's, like, a couple of, like, little bits here and there. I'll keep doing it. I mean, it's a fun show to do, and it's sort of, like, its own kind of thing as a show. But, yeah, it's pretty much the end of the touring life. Like, I can't keep doing that forever. Are we okay to discuss some of it in a kind of spoiler way? Yeah, I don't yeah. Oh, I, don't think, I, I don't think it can really – you can't – 
it's it, I, even I don't know what the fuck is going on in that show. So it's I don't think it'll spoil it for anyone. Okay, so just to kind of to to continue this thought about this sort of inception nature of it, Dave goes to Golier, yeah, a, a, a real clown school. Yes, yeah, a real clown school. Really go? Did you really go? God no. But okay, okay. Well, that, I mean, that's, <laughs> I meet so many people who did you go to Golier? No, no. no, no. I mean, I've done enough of those exercises, like from previously Lecoq people, like years yeah. ago before it was cool. Yeah. I was terrible at it. I was always terrible. Oh, it's awful. It's horrible. I, yeah, I've met so many Golier uh, graduates who are like, well, of course, you know, when you were at Golier, and I'm like, no, I didn't go there. I'm like, what? I'm like, yeah, it's just really easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, I mean, I don't, there's, there's so much to talk about at once. Let's stay on this for a second. Your clowning in the show is unbelievably good. Your contact with the audience is unbelievably good. You're doing an impression of a shit clown being shit at clowning, and the way that you smile to the audience and open up to us about how terrible your clowning is is perfect clowning well yeah it's it's just i mean that i think that's the thing it's like the 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 clown so i've got a i've got a cold and i keep like i sound like i'm underwater for the benefit but, of the uh, listener it's the yeah. closing it's the dying embers of the edinburgh fridge <laughs> so everyone's ill uh, um uh, so the uh, I understand why people do that sort of training uh, uh, to um, to learn how to open up to an audience. Uh, the other form of training that you can do is 15 years of being like a really shit stand-up comic. And then you, you have a relationship with the audience where you can sort of open up with them. I sort of, yeah. So I, I really think it's, I mean, there's like technical skills like miming and stuff, which is just actually pretty easy. It's just doing something, but... Just putting your hands on a wall that's not there. Everyone can do it. Um, but uh, the the thing of being open to an audience, I mean, all stand-up essentially and clowning and uh, making people laugh is actually just about, like, being open and engaged with an audience. And that, yes. that's also why there's so much sort of politics involved and, and uh, identity politics and things involved in s- sort of stand-up uh, and comedy is because it's like, you and ha- and a group of people and then however they perceive you and what you are and it can be quite um yeah it's just it's a really really raw kind of art form i think when you get yes. down to it and that's why it's quite fun just to stand and just be like yeah, not do also, anything I, I think something to do with um, a game is something to do with clowning knowing what the what the game is that you're playing with the audience and mm. because the game is you, know, you have set up from a from an e- being able to just tell us out loud you've set up the game that you are a pretend comedian who's gone to a clowning school and you're now going... So we all know that we're about to watch someone clown badly. So the game is very clearly delineated. So you don't need to worry about us not getting it. You just need to do... Oh, sometimes people do not get it. Well, we'll come on to that. But but it's such a shame that this is being an audio kind of medium. The twinkle in your eye and the way you kind of put your hands out like, I'm a shit clown and I don't know what I'm doing. It's just perfect clowning and it, it sounds like that is, I, I don't think that necessarily can be achieved simply by 15 years on the circuit I think it's about a quality you have maybe may learned or maybe natural whereby uh, you get us and you let us in you look like you're incredibly good at letting us in which I guess is why people think you've done proper clowning classes P- uh, possibly I mean I don't know it's um, <clears throat> I've said this like before and it's kind of pathetic but um, I feel like I I just love the audience. And and when I say the audience, I feel like 
the audience is like it's like the longest relationship that I've had is with the audience and I think of the audience as like an entity as just a one like a person like like yeah, so when I walk out on stage every night I um I'm like oh hello again like it's just like I know I know logically that it's just like a different group of people but when I walk out I'm like it's uh it's just like my my best friend and my lover I'm just like <laughs> I miss them and uh, and I mean and them as in not even plural just like them as in like a transgender them I suppose uh, like a singular <laughs> them I'm like <laughs> like they're in different moods every night and yes. they might uh, behave so that's why when they're walking out of some of them are walking out of the show I'm like <laughs> there's the door it's all right yeah it's fine you know we're not getting on that well tonight I love I love the audience unconditionally I think that is such an incredible starting point for a, for a live performance. I've never heard that. This is, you know, whatever it is, interview 230. I've never heard anyone describe the audience like that. I love it. And it really? Makes, it, yeah. it seems so simple to me. I just, it's, I haven't done it on purpose. I just, like, it's kind of, it's, it's probably, you know, pathological. I just, I, I genuinely do look at the audience as a... Since the word go, since your very first gig? Is yeah, that, is that I was actually... you've learned along the way? Or? Yeah, no, it's like, I was actually thinking about it, um... Last night, I was like, "When did I? When did I first meet the audience?" And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, "I can remember the first time that I sort of stepped on stage, and uh, I was, you know, in a, a school thing, and I just, I remember that there's a vibe to the audience. They've got like a a, a feeling, and a it's a, and it, it feels like from that point." It's just the same. It's been the same thing. And so that's who I'm and performing what, to, I suppose. And we've gone through rough patches, but, um, yeah. It's not, I, I haven't cultivated or anything. It's just, there's something is, wrong with me. What is the vibe when you say there's that vibe? Can you just talk? Because what you're talking about is such a sort of arguably an obvious thing, but just that I haven't heard anyone else say before. <laughs> and, and it's also, it's such a vivid idea of like, it's a permanent relationship with that group. So what is. What is that relationship? It's about you said it's about loving the audience. Yeah, I, I think it's just um, I I think well I I don't relate well I, I I can talk to one person or I can talk to like a hundred or more people any anywhere sort of between like one and twenty I'm I'm not very good like I'm not very good in like a social scenario I'm not so it, it's sort of it's just um. I, it, it is just a way of communicating that makes sense to me. I think okay. it's a way of um, there's uh, there's probably something wrong with my brain, but uh, it's uh, it's yeah, it's it's quite hard to articulate. I guess it's it's just a way of uh, communicating. I think there's like a, a mass a mass of people has like a collective energy that is. Um, there's something sort of hovering above them that is like a a, a collection of mood or uh, opinion that you can then kind of delve into that and find some sort of um, common connection point. And when you can make a whole group of people laugh, that's so satisfying because you've found a, a thing that they all think at the same time and you're sort of saying something and you're responding to them and they're responding to you. And it's, um, it's, it's not just saying to one person like, Oh, do you think this? And they're like, yeah, I do too. I also do. There's, there's no lying or like, there's no sh yes. shortcuts or something. Yes, it no just goes, they can fake it. No. And that's, I think there's something really pure and nice about that. 
I want to look at that in, in two different... I want to just stay with that for a second and look at that in two different ways. One of them is... Like, that's all very well on a particular night. But what's so exciting about what you described is that they're the same people, <laughs> whether there are 100 people in Edinburgh or 500 people in Australia or anywhere else. Yeah. They are the same audience. Yeah. So you're, re- you're meeting them anew each time, but there is some sort of continuity to you and your life, presumably. Yeah, I just, um, well, because I think the thing that I like, oh, God, this is so, this is so no, pretentious. Yeah, no, no, totally, um, this is exactly this what is I want, this is great. Massively <laughs> wanky, but um, I think there's something about, because I started doing stand-up when I was 15, so, and I, and, and there's something about that relationship with the audience. When you go on stage, you don't go like, oh, I'm just going to, like, work out what these 60 people or 100 people or whatever, like, I'm not going to, just speak to the people in the room. What you're trying to cut to is like some sort of like heart of humanity or something. There's some like common thing that you're trying to find. So, and that doesn't change really. Like what you're trying to find is like a universal or a, I mean, there's no such thing as a universal, but, but you're trying to find something that like everyone inverted commas relates to. So it's, it's a constant sort of search and it's just like different. I mean, yeah, if you could, if you could have a million people in the room, it should be the same as if you have like a hundred. Yes. But that's also, I mean, it can also be very skewed because um, uh, the the sorts of people who go to comedy shows, the sorts of people who do comedy shows are very much a very specific wedge of society. And yes. by that I mean like very male, very white, often very straight, privileged Etc. And and that's also reflected in the audience as well. So yes. So yeah. you're careful not to you're being careful then not to assume that universal in a kind of archetypal sense. Yeah. I'm talking to humanity to to make sure that that is this tiny slice of humanity represents self selected. Yeah. And and you can see and that's why I, I think it's for me it's about um uh it's it's a this is why I have so many callbacks in my show, uh, because I, uh, I feel like if you're trying to find like a, a false universal, you'll be like, you'll see like a lot of guys do stuff about like, oh, you know how it is having a wife. And it's like, no, no, I don't. Like, I don't know that specific thing, but it, it's, um, speaking to a common, a specific common experience that, that slice of their audience will understand. But if you're just trying to speak to people, it's about sort of empathy, really. It's about like a larger kind of empathy and trying to find like what makes people laugh. It's not about like what's the experience that you've had that I've also had. Like, oh, you know, when you go to the shops or, you know, you know those specific sort of observational experiences. So it's... um. So that's why I have so many callbacks in my shows because my experience of the world, I don't feel, and I worked this out years ago. I was like, oh, my experience of the world is vastly different to the majority of people in my audience. So I can't relate to them on a level of going, oh, you know when this thing happens in your life because they don't and I don't. I have to, I have to create in the room understandings of like this means this and that means that and then that's you have to create your own setups yes. and your own understandings of the world 
and then you can call back to them. So you, it's actually just creating jokes and un- references and understandings within the room. So you're creating a common language where you feel one doesn't necessarily yeah, exist. Yeah, because I don't actually share a common language with the world, clearly. <laughs> Why did you say that? Um... Uh, well, I mean, just from listening to myself talk now, I sound like a mental person. Um, uh, it, just because, well, I mean, my I am like a minority in lots of ways. You know, I'm a, a female comedian. Uh, I'm queer. You know, I, I'm from a small town in Australia. Like, my, my specific experience of the world is not... Uh, shared by a lot of people. So the sorts of things that I'd be like, oh, you know, when this happens, there's a very, very small group of people who will understand those specific experiences, and that's sort of quite boring anyway. Um, it's like, oh, you know, when you're at Grafton High and, uh, like, <laughs> like Mr. Williams said, like, it's not – yeah, I mean, but we all are. We're all individuals and we all have specific experiences. And, and what's the relationship between that and the idea of the audience as a mass? Um, I think it's, for me, it's about feeling like very much like an outsider all the time and trying to find a common language. So it's still, it's always a, a search to find what is common. Um, as opposed to being told this is common experience and then me feeling on the outside and going like, I don't, that's not my experience of the world. It's not my, I don't get that. So it's about trying to uh, find a way in, I suppose, and and find a commonality and, and not, not state a common experience as well. Not me as the comedian standing on stage going like, this is, this is my experience. Like this is, this is what I reckon it's about sort of asking the audience a little bit and finding like I I, uh, the, I do comedy to not to tell people what I think but to find out what I think and what they think as well as try to make sense of things not tell them what it is I think. and do you do you when you're sitting in an audience watching shows do you feel part of the same audience as the audience that watches you oh that's a good question um no. <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't, actually. No. What so that's the, the – yeah, I, suppose, I mean, and they don't either when they're all – I mean, no one's like – that's why like, it's made up. I'm the audience. Yeah, no, no one's – I, I sometimes do. I think yeah. I do sometimes watching like, – like I said at the very beginning of this when I said watching you, I felt very confident we were all going to go for a standing up. And that's not a – you know, that's a, that's a nervous place. Yeah. You don't do that that often. No. And you don't want to be the one person doing it. Um, but I was like, we're, we're in this. You know, there was definitely a sense of... Yeah, there can be moments of that. at the moment. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, there can be moments of that when you're like... I love I love applauding. I've always, like, I love um, those sort of, like, moments when an audience sort of simultaneously does something. And when you're in the audience, it does feel that good. It, it's quite rare, though, really. Like, it doesn't really happen that often that you're in an audience and you're like feel that connected to all yes. the other people. Um, yes. but, one of your- but that's what you're searching for, really, I think. As, as yes. a performer, you're searching for creating that feeling in like, – I mean, I even say it as a joke. It's like in the show, it's like if this works, it's meant to be amazing for you guys. Like you all simultaneously orgasm and it's like a rave in the 90s. Like that's a joke, but also that is the goal. Yes. Yes. So do you, when you see other comics, stand-ups, clowns, do you 
do you have a feeling, do you have a sense of whether they are being true to the audience or whether they, it's almost like, do you have a sense of whether they are pursuing the same things you're pursuing or the, whether their relationship with an audience is similar to, to yours? No, I mean, I don't, I don't sort of, uh, have any judgment on that. I don't, uh, I, I think everyone has their own, well, I, I think it's just whether they're connecting or whether they're, it's working. And, and sometimes it can, you can see the same comic like lots of times and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, just whacking the microphone. <laughs> um, so yeah, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, you, I don't think, uh, you can't, I, I mean, I, I think sometimes you do see someone who's like not connecting with the audience or they might be sort of um, off or uncomfortable. And I think also you see like comics when they're really young. It's quite interesting to see like really young comics who haven't sort of, and I, I also remember myself as well when I was really young and just starting out and wouldn't look like couldn't look at them and couldn't, um, couldn't connect or felt self-conscious or whatever. I think that that is actually the process of becoming comic is that you learn how to like what your relationship is with the audience. And some comics have like a really aggressive relationship with the audience. They're like, don't fuck with me. I'm going to, and, and they dominate them. And, um, and that can be actually be really enjoyable. And some people really like that. Uh, some, uh, more, like chatty and open and you know everyone's everyone has a different relationship So this is Zoe. We'll get straight back to this in just a moment. Uh, Just time to remind you, of course, that if you go to comedianscomedian.com, you can sign up for the mailing list. You can download my free comedy album. You can get hold of a list of the 10 most popular episodes as voted for by you, the listener. So do remember, if you go to comedianscomedian.com, you can find out loads more about the show. There's a search function there, so you can... There's a a tag cloud. You can choose your favourite aspect of uh, comedy and try to discover other shows in this series that have... uh, that have some relevance to that and of course you can get hold of my free stand-up comedy album An Hour as well as a list of the 10 uh, episodes of this podcast that the listeners are most excited for as voted by you the listener so you can get hold of all of those things and of course the compilation album Break Glass in Case of Emergency all set to stirring optimistic music as uh, the great and the good of comedy from the first 140 something episodes all share their most positive upbeat suggestions on how they pick themselves up after tough gigs how they continue to believe in themselves when the going gets tough so all of that available from comedianscomedian.com now before we go back to zoe uh, a couple of little things i wanted to refer to an email which said this is bav bav is uh, a long-term supporter of the show bav says just listen to the howard reed episode uh, it was just great halfway through you mentioned rob deering's coffee song it's now been stuck in my head all day and i despise you for it it took at least a week to get out of my head when i first heard it years back at the comedy store and now i'm listening to it on youtube so do have a little google on the youtubes of rob deer and coffee as well as howard reed haberdashery if you'd like to hear some incredibly uh repetitive and annoying and funny songs so thanks to bav for that and just a little update on what's been going on in the facebook group recently we've had some really exciting posts uh, lots of people 
weighing in on a, a number of subjects. Over five and a half thousand people now in the, in the Facebook group. So if you'd like to meet other ComComPod community members and uh, swap information with them about gigs you should be seeing and spare tickets people have got and also things like this. This has been good. A listener was asking for advice on judging an improv competition. Another listener was asking for people's favourite ever show title. I've pinned that one for now because that's uh, there's lots of great suggestions on there. Uh, and there's some corkers on there. Someone recommending a Netflix show about Jim Carrey and the brilliant Kate Webster calling back to an offhand uh, gag that you might remember if you saw Everyone's a Comedian about contactless payments for homeless people with a link to a charity who are trying to do exactly that. So do get along if you are interested in finding out other things that are related to the podcast and the sorts of things that we're all interested in, then get along to the Facebook group. That is that. Couple of donation thanks. Uh, thank you to Melanie, to Ian, to Daniel and to Bob Rob for their one-off donations in the last week or so. Uh, and thank you to Anthony and Alexander as well for supporting the show with a recurring subscription. If you would like to be considered in the same breath as those people, uh, if you are of their ilk and wish to support the show financially, if you appreciate it making some kind of a difference to your life or your work or your practice or indeed your your <laughs> i was going to say something very positive about your head your mental health and your state of mind and if you find that this is helping then it's always good to give me a little sun and to keep the lights on and you can do that at comedianscomedia.com forward slash donate uh, with a one-off or a regular subscription payment to support the show and remember if you can't support the show then you if you can't do it financially then you can support the show in any number of other ways mostly by sharing it telling people about it writing a positive review wherever you get your podcasts and of course subscribing to the show so do remember it's going to be a little christmas gift over the festive period uh, the first thousand of you who are subscribed when i chuck it online are going to get a free copy of my new stand-up comedy album compared to what so do make sure you're subscribed join the mailing list at the website and do go along to comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour to find out where I'm going to be on tour. There's going to be uh, loads and loads of shows, 40-something dates. We've added a few more. Uh, Norwich, I'm now coming to Norwich, which I'm very excited about. I had a great reception there a couple of years ago. Lovely to return. Uh, Sheffield is now on sale. And there will also be some news coming soon about some London dates for the tour as well. So that is everything. That is all the administrative things. Thank you for listening. I will speak to you afterwards and we'll have a little post-amble as well. So now let's get back to Zoe Coombs Mark. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Are there moments when you recognize Obviously, in the case of the occasional walkouts from the show, I'm going to say occasionally, I'm not how often, but... It's that doesn't happen that often. No. That night was pretty okay. extraordinary. It was pretty good. Uh, it's been a while, but... But there, so there are certainly cases where some people are like, this is not the show for me. Like, I yeah. get, like whether they say thinking on, on face value, it was an actual white guy called Dave. I have no uh, idea. I don't know. Yeah, it's funny. But, um, but with audiences who do buy you and are interested, do you ever find that you accidentally ever get the tone wrong i see the example i'm thinking of is uh, not in your work but um i find my relationship with the audience is such that i'm happy to be there i'm happy they're there if i get heckled it's taken me years to learn to deal with a heckler softly enough yeah because if i'm too hard i break the contract with them and they all go Ooh. yeah do you know what i mean because i'm i'm like i've gone oh i've revealed something either too true or true that we don't like or something else. Yeah. So I'm wondering, are there any equivalent times when you have an audience and you risk losing them due to uh, a misstep of the relationship? Yeah, yeah, they have... Um, it does. I mean, there, yes, there are some... Sometimes some people are just like, this is not for me, and that is absolutely fine. Like I say, I love them unconditionally, and that's if, that, if what they want to do is not be there, that's totally fine. Um... Uh, it's been a long like I do get some sort of funny heckles and stuff um, it, it took me a long time as well to work out how to deal with them softly and keep them on board um, do you mean as Dave or as Zoe as, as both I mean I am Dave <laughs> <laughs> we'll get on to that in a second Dave is me. <laughs> um, but there's something about the tone as well because what I do is like a parody of quite an offensive character. It's a really fine line um, of making sure that everyone understands the irony of it and the parody of it because it's really important to me that people don't get that tone wrong. And so sometimes people I, – I feel like I, I don't um, – the heckly thing or the, like, keeping them on side is just, is, is okay. It's like, it, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, that's fine. But I have had a few occasions where, like, I had, I was doing a show a while ago as Dave and, um, I was like, oh, feminists. And this guy was like, yeah, boo! <laughs> <laughs> and I had to sort of stuff and go like, oh, buddy, like, uh, I just need to make sure that you know this is a parody and yes. I'm, um, what when I say feminists boo, I mean like the opposite. So, <laughs> but you do see sometimes uh, people who will do like a a parody that will be taken the wrong way. Like if you do like a parody of a racist character, you don't want racists to like it, and you actually have to make sure that they don't. You have to make sure that you're making your point clear. That's that's the that's the one fine line that can sometimes be. Um, Hard to ride. And, and I do more and more. I have had, um, recently, uh, like 
people who would presumably be my peers, so like queer women and, and feminists, watching Dave and being quite like offended by it and taking it on face value, even though I think they know that I'm a woman pretending to be a man, there's something about the um, the stuff that I'm saying that is quite sexist that they're like, oh, nah, you can't even if even though you're being ironic about it, you can't you can't do that. So it, 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 sometimes that happens, and that's that's an interesting thing that I'm sort of dealing with at the moment of trying to work out exactly. Yes. Do you ever? Yeah, so tell me about you working that out at the moment. That seems like a really, particularly at the moment when the internet has sped up the discourse and the word's wrong now that seemed okay 10 days ago and everyone's all too keen to point it out. Yeah. Um, trying to exist, I find trying to exist as a white man, trying to be an ally and trying to not get the terminology wrong and not interrupt. I, you know, whatever it is, whatever the, the, the stereotype of my behavior that I'm trying not to fulfill, um, I'm aware of like, oh, I've, there's a misstep. Oh, I've got to go back and, and sort that out. Of course, of yeah. course, and that, as, as, as should be the case. But for someone who is on kind of the bleeding edge of, of the, uh, the discourse through your performance, mm. so it, even you are kind of not enough for some people. Sometimes, or, yeah, and, and that's... Um Again, that's okay. That's that's fine. It's it's quite interesting. Like I was doing, I was do, I might have said this on. Sometimes I say it on stage. Um, I had I was doing a gig in London uh, earlier in the year, and um, it was at a, a queer club, and it was a part of a drag king night, and uh, and drag kings are like a dying breed anyway. But so I was uh, I was performing at this thing, and it was like so it's a very clear context. It's like drag king, queer club. I'm a woman pretending to be a man, doing a parody of sexist stand up comedy, and I was doing a bit about how you can't find the clitoris because there's a major flaw in the female anatomy, and women are bitches for being such like so deceptive with their genitals. And then, um, <laughs> and then <laughs> these women started yelling at me like, "There's nothing wrong with women's bodies," and I was like. I had to drop character. I was like, yeah, I know. Like, I'm in one. (laughs) (laughs) And they kept yelling at me and they just wouldn't. And they're like, yeah, we know. But I was like, I am a woman. And they were like, yeah, but you're being really rude about other women's bodies. And I was just like, what is – I think there is like a – it's – it's like a generational shift and, and I'm probably just, they're a little bit younger than me. And so, I mean, I'm in my early thirties. So I think that's the point when the conversation does start to change, especially if you're dealing with like political stuff. So I, I don't begrudge them for having that stance. It's just, they probably don't want to see me uh, dealing with those issues through comedy. That's the way that I've had to deal with those things and that's my way of carving out space but it's not necessarily theirs and so it's like what's like cutting edge and political for me coming into my own like throughout my 20s and now into my 30s is it is different to that and I think that's like with political stuff you sort of have to accept that as well to go like you have to accept that you might actually be wrong and also that you might not be uh what people want to see and all the way that they want to deal with those those things because the if you are making political stuff or if you are dealing with politics the outcome the ultimate outcome is not 
people thinking I'm a great comedian. It's actually that the world is a bit of a better place. So maybe the world being a bit of a better place is that people don't want to, like, weird parody feminist clown. Like, oh, they don't need it or they don't like it. And that's that's sort of okay. It's not... I, I don't... I'd rather defend those people's right to not like me than defend my yes. right to make jokes about something on stage. That is an incredible <laughs> answer. <Yeah. laughs> That's an amazing answer. Um, do you, is it frustrating to have to have come to that conclusion, though? Is, is there any frustration attached to, and I think of, and it's a, an obvious example, and I'm aware with this whole interview, you will have talked about your work and the, the incredible layers of your work. One of the things I like doing is uh, is challenging people on their preconceptions of their work. I think you'll pr- I find you pretty much unchallengeable because you've done. I saw Wild Boar the other night, and we'll talk about that. As well. <laughs> but I'm just like, oh, I haven't got a leg to stand on to sort of to kind of challenge you on on anything you might assert. But I wonder if there is like so. The example for me would be something like Jermaine Greer being no platformed mm. because of her remarks that could be taken as transphobic. Yeah, and. Like, I just don't know what to do with that. I sort of get it. I get both sides. And then I start worrying. But if we, if we, it, like, does it muddy the initial message? Do younger people appreciate the work that went into giving them the rights they have now? You deal with this brilliantly with the stuff on intersectionality. Well, I was talking to um, my, uh, my trans friend about this. Uh, just like, I've got trans friends. <laughs> um, no, I was talking to my friend actually last night about this. And it was like that they had said that someone had quoted Jermaine Greer in something. And so, they were like, is that an ironic use? Because you can't, you can't quote Jermaine Greer in 2017 earnestly as like a, and not be transphobic. And I was like, well, they're either, and so they were like, maybe that, anyway, so it was, it was, it's the context of, of uh, being like a Jermaine Greer fan now is really tied up in that. And I think that's the thing of like, you know, you see a lot of comics and stuff going like, oh, politic, like the political correctness. Like you can't. Oh, I just want to be able to do do my jokes and make people laugh. And it's like, well, your job isn't actually to make people want, like, to make people like the jokes that you've come up with. Your job again. It's like the t- comedy changes because the world changes, and either you change with it and are like, what? Hey, the audience, what do you want to hear today? Like, what what actually makes you like? You can listen to that and go like, what makes you laugh? What? And you can move with the times and change with it, or you can try to stay the same and get angry about the world changing around you. And and I think that's yeah. And I think there's a lot of that. And I think it's also it is difficult to kind of go like because I I think we 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 position ourselves sometimes as like oh I'm pro- progressive, but what's progressive for me in like. 2004 when I'm first like coming out and doing comedy and stuff is really different to what is progressive now and that's ex- actually exciting as a progressive that's exciting yes yes yeah that exactly. it's 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 exciting to be start to be left behind and then to go like oh oh great like I'll catch up yes. and see what well, you think and then and then I can try to mm, that's why so when these women are like that's not funny like you know like that that shows like two years old. Great, 
That's great that that's not funny anymore. I'll make something else funny about now. Yes. yes. That's not- and, I, and I think I, my instinct is that there are, I won't say so many, but I can certainly point to a couple of very specific examples of male comics in their 40s and 50s who are furious that the world has changed around them and don't want to make the world a better place. They want everything back as it was when they were a 20-year-old rebel in leather trousers. Yeah, and they're like, I'm progressive. I'm this guy. I'm the progressive guy. Because they were. They were alternative. And now they're like, oh, everyone's all snowflakes now. It's like, no, you're just... It's like when people say, like, there's no... Young people aren't doing anything good anymore. When I was young, there were great parties. And it's like... No, they're still having parties. You're just not invited. Yes. Like, you just don't know where the parties are. So I, I think that's the... I think it's... it's um, It is challenging, but also exciting to, to kind of accept that there are younger, cooler people who are having conversations that you're not entirely privy to. And that's... I, I, also, as... Comedy, I mean, it's such a young person's game as well, and I think this is like an ongoing conversation. Really, it's like how do you, how do you, how do you stay a comedian as you get older as well? And it's it, it is about like not being that guy, not being Jermaine Greer, because Jermaine Greer was like fucking incredible. She was amazing, but she's totally out of date now. She's like out of step. She's wrong. She's um, holding on to ideas that were forged in a, a particular society that no longer exists as well. And so our ideas of gender, which she spoke about so well when she was, like, listening and aware of what the world was going, that world doesn't exist and those ideas of gender are different. Gender is a different thing now. So Jermaine Greer is just like, she's, she's an idiot. She's out of touch. Like, she's just wrong. So does that mean you need to be in a position where you need to celebrate 10 or 20 years from now that, you know, in the way that like, my grandchildren would never disapprove of me. You know, like you sort of think, Oh God, they'll one day say, granddad, you went to a zoo. What are you? A fucking Nazi? Yeah. You know, no, no, it was fine then. Yeah. Do you need to celebrate the fact that maybe 10 or 20 years from now, something or a lot of what you've done on stage in that, in that way that oh, like, yeah. degree, you're getting really involved. You're spending a lot of time on the material and mm-hmm. discussing. You need to celebrate the fact that that might be, like worst oh, case, yeah. horribly offensive totally. and inappropriate. Yep, absolutely. I reckon probably. I mean, if everything goes well in twenty years' time, my like none of my comedy will make sense at all because the world of, will have changed so much that like gender isn't even a thing, and people, you know, people will be like, "What's this woman pretending to be a man?" Like, on There's I mean, air, air quotes over both of uh, you know, it's uh, that's that's fine. But the thing is, like, Jermaine Greer has only negated what she said. She, what she said when, like, what her, you know, female eunuch and her early writings and things were really they weren't they're not incorrect now. They're not um, they're not wrong and 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 they're not like it doesn't her her shitty stuff that she says now doesn't make those things wrong uh, that she said in the past but but she has negated her own relevance by not changing and uh and i think that that's a that is a challenge particularly for progressives to kind of to change your ideas as you go on and and to to move with what other like what what changes are happening in the world and and respond to it so yeah it'd be great if like 
20 years from now, my the comedy that I'm doing right now is totally outdated. Of course it that's, will be. That's a lovely clownish idea. I'm really struggling to become irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite an attractive idea. Yeah, it's, it's of course, of course. Otherwise, you'd just do the one joke forever and everyone would be like, oh, it's still... Yeah. It's, yeah. So, so coming back to the, the structure of Dave and the, the sort of the, the nested, layered nature of it, there's a moment in the show, which I guess is always in the show, you, you sort of, maybe you've already described the genesis of that moment, where you just broke character and looked at us <laughs> and said, um, some people are hating this, but it's okay for you to hate me because I'm not real. And I, I, I have to say, my initial reaction was, oh no, don't do this, I want to believe in Dave. And then, of course, is the precursor to this incredible kind of at the risk of spoiling the show or elements of the, the, the show Dave Dave discovers he's in a clown and his inner clown is a quote 30 year old cranky lesbian called Zoe so now you're performing someone whose inner reality is you and it all reflects back on itself yeah. and it's just incredible so let's <laughs> before we get into the layering of that let's can you tell us a bit more about your stand-up as Zoe before you started doing the character of Dave? Because all I've managed to find online was a Oh, there's very fan. little. I know, yes. yes which is great. Very little. I mean, that's, that's a really worth watching. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I started doing stand-up when, when I was really young. Um, I was just sort of compelled to. Uh, I love, like, and I say this in the show as well, like, I love stand-up. I love just, like, standing at a microphone and talking to people. But, um, I mean, my stand-up, it's, it's, it's like what I, I do a little bit of it in the show. It's just like silly, like, puns and fisting jokes, <laughs> just some light fisting jokes. Um, and, uh, yeah, just like it's sort of si- silly jokes. And uh, my experience, though, of trying to be a stand-up as a young woman was uh really difficult and and it was really uh it was i i never really found a place or a a, a community really or a, a way in so it was always a struggle and so that's why but i but I, I loved the form so much so it was always just like batting my head against a wall and uh that's where dave came from was just like this sort of I couldn't, I couldn't get in, and so then I just sort of exploded it what, into this, this strange of, character that was like a parody of everything that I was like working against, I suppose. What sorts of, um, uh, I suppose, cliques or groups or subcultures within comedy did you feel on the outside? Of? Well, I mean, I was doing stand-up in uh, Sydney in uh, in the sort of mid 2000s that's when I sort of started so there was there wasn't really I mean Australia has such a small population we had Sydney didn't really have a comedy scene it does a bit more now and I think if I were doing it now it would be a really different story but there was was no there were very few gigs at all and um there were like the real old school mainstream club Guys, and and then there were a couple of open mics, and that was sort of it. And there wasn't there wasn't any niche or clique or anything, so it was just okay. sort of you you couldn't really find your way in. Uh, someone like me, I didn't realise that I was niche. I just thought I was a person. Uh, <laughs> but and then it was like I'd get on stage, and people were like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Like being this, this like small kind of like queer 
child on stage trying to make jokes about dinosaurs and stuff. I was like, people didn't want it. So, so the, the dinosaur poem that I've seen on YouTube, it looked like you were sort of in character and glasses in a cagoule. Yeah, that was that I uh, that I created. So I, I think, and I think a lot of women do this as well. I sort of started to go into sort of charactery stuff. Um, and I pierced my nose specifically so I could do uh, an effect of, like, just getting a nosebleed live on stage. <laughs> <laughs> That's – talk to me about Because <laughs> I remembered um, – I was reading a review of the, the original Dave show that I saw, the first one I'd seen. Um, that you bled green, and I was like, "God, yeah, she did. That was really trippy." Yeah, and then right. one of the—I mean, one of the one of the numerous excellent moments, along with the—I mean, that whole section of fighting inside the realizing <laughs> you're inside a mind box. I mean, I was literally watching like this. I was, just, I was like, "I love it so much." But the—and then there's a wonderful moment which will be familiar to people who've played the Silent Hill movie, uh, Silent Hill video game franchise. There's a particularly horrifying moment of a nurse with just like a rivulet of blood around her face. <laughs> just gives me chills. Is there a, is it a preoccupation of yours? Yeah, Do I you think, think it is. It's weird. Um, I, it's in almost all my shows have some sort of blood in them. Um, and I am, I don't think I'd be able to watch one of my own shows because I'm incredibly squeamish. Ah! And <laughs> I faint really easily. Okay. So um, I think it's sort of connected in some way that uh, I have this like sick fascination with it. It's just, I just is the funniest thing to me. It's the the, um, the sort of ex- the, the exposure of a, a live person. And, and I think it's why I like stand up as well. It's so raw. It's just a person right there, and just like. I love, like, I love seeing someone bomb as well. Like, I love, not like a real proper, not like a young, like, an open micer bomb. I love watching, like, a real consummate performer just, like, <laughs> bomb and know they're bombing and just be like, woof, this is not going well. And so the funniest thing for me is someone just, like, breaking down and then the, the, the literal version of that is, like, their insides, like, coming out of their face. So <laughs> the idea of someone like getting up to do like a really serious speech or something and then just getting a, a nosebleed. It's just so funny to me. It's just like viscerally like it's just like um it's just hilarious. <laughs> is it something about the betrayal of the flesh? Is like your body betraying you? Yeah. Is it something to do with status? Yeah, it's something about like get yeah, getting up and like pretending to be like it's like I've got. I, I know what I'm doing, and yeah. then it's like your body just going. Nah, you're just like a big flesh puppet, aren't you? Like you're just like all full. Everyone. Yeah, you're just full of blood. <laughs> 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 and then you can't. What do you do? Like if your if your face is leaking. I mean, I used to in the er, very early days of doing Dave. I used to have he would bleed, um, vomit then green stuff would start coming out of his head and also I had this thing where I had uh I had rigged up like on my hands and my would oh he would bleed from the ears as well and um and I would get a nosebleed and then there was also like I had all these like pipes set up in different places where um beer would start just pouring out of me like just and he would uh 
like drink his beer and then uh, refill it from like his face and hands <laughs> and then like drink it again. Just be like, ah, just leaking. Just. So where? <laughs> this is going to sound so weird. Well, I mean, yeah, of course it will. But um, one of the things I'm interested in is the the relationship between you and other clown performers and watching you as a stand-up myself and watching you as a clown and seeing you skewer certain things which I loathe when I see them on stage mm. and then I'm also in this position of watching and going oh god any minute she's going to hit something I do and I'm going to you know absolutely so one thing I noticed is how specific how generally specific some of the targets are like the Amelie music for example <laughs> you know and the fact of talking about getting your dick out and as someone who's been to a lot of festivals yeah. a lot of comedy festivals you can go there's that and there's that and she's going for everyone yeah yeah it's like I mean the dick out thing uh so many people are like, oh, that's that guy, isn't it? Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> and that's I'm, it. No, and it's, but it's, yeah, it's all these different guys. Like, I've seen, like, one or two guys, but it's just, like, every guy gets his dick out. I mean, why wouldn't you? They're f- funny, I suppose. Um, it is the sort of commonality of it. It's, I mean, it's like any parody. You find a pattern, really. And then that's funny. Um, but it's not it's not really targeted at any specific person. And I get it from like both the clowning thing and, and the stand up thing. It's like, oh, is it is it based on anyone? It's based on everyone. And myself as well, you know, like all the stand up parody sort of stuff and the cloying for laughter and all that sort of stuff is a dig at myself as well. Is the vomiting and bleeding on stage and the mime and the bananas and all the rest of it, they're sort of are they kind of similar to getting your dick out? Are they they're kind of clown tropes? Uh, to- well, I mean, it's really just me genuinely just trying to make people laugh. Like, I'm just like, what's the... I just, what do you want? What do you, do you want to see like a, a banana here? Oh, a vomit, bleed? Uh, okay, okay. So what, so what is the relationship then between the cerebral... <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> naughty. Not yeah. No, I'm fine. We'll just listen to you sniff. <laughs> oh, so gross. What's the relationship then between the cerebral stuff whereby you are the cerebral stuff as well, I'll take closer. <laughs> um, what's the relationship between the, the cerebral, sort of the, uh, the analysis of your work and your place as an artist who is able to talk very intelligently and articulately about your work and the clown or the performer on stage just yeah. going, fuck, fuck, what do you want? Um, like those things, are, those things are not frequently next to each other, or are they? No, I think they, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I really just, it just feels like a normal way to communicate to me. This is it. People are like, oh, your stuff is so weird. And I'm like, is it? I doesn't, it doesn't feel like, I don't think, I don't think that anything that I'm doing is like crazy or weird in any way. I, to me, it just feels really logical and normal. <laughs> I'm just like, well, of course I, of course I bleed from the head. That's fun. That's the that's the logical next step of that. And I'm like, oh well, who would cl- Dave's clown be? Oh, of course it would be me. Yes, right. <laughs> yes. So is the is it something to do with the intensity then? Because you are an incredibly, uh, incredibly engaging performer, and the speed with which you flick 
between like in the way you're just like oh it's just mime you just do the thing your mime is fantastic it's really good technical mime your clowning is fantastic it's really good clowning and um, it sounds like you've just sort of stumbled upon this stuff because it seems obvious in a way that I think will infuriate anyone who's struggled in a clown class <laughs> <laughs> oh but I would struggle in a clown class as well like I it would be hor- horrible it, um um no, it's, I mean, I've also struggled on stage lots of times as well. It's just, I, I think any of it is just about uh, finding the the logical thing and it always comes back to the audience as well. It's just like, and I work, you know, you work stuff out on stage. I, I suppose the reason that I, it might seem like things are quick or like transitions and stuff, it's just because I've done it lots of times. It's actually just practice. It's just practice and, and, uh, and skill building over time. It's just it's it's uh, it's not it's not magic. It's just work. <laughs> it's just work, and it's also listening as well. It's like um, you know, uh, expose uh, being brave enough to expose yourself uh, to an audience, and also uh, being receptive enough to know when it's working and when it's not, and and to to have the instincts to kind of go, which you build up over time as well, to 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 know where to go. To, to lean into something or pull back or or what's going to make an audience laugh or and what what they'll understand and what they won't. I mean, I spent years alienating audiences where they're just like, we don't know what the fuck you're doing. But I'm, I'm, you know, trying to find that place. And how did that feel when you were – obviously, you can look back on that now as someone who is successful and celebrated. Hugely the, successful. <laughs> but at the Wildly. time – At the time, you're a young woman – having a like trying to do something it doesn't work we've all been there trying to do something it doesn't work and when we're in it at the time it's like should I even be doing this did you have any issues oh with yeah that? Or were you very committed to no no I'm going to keep doing this no no it. huge like oh uh, um self-doubt and and rightly so I mean I think when anyone starts out you're crap like I was like oh it's like they think I'm crap maybe I'm crap I was crap like I was terrible like everyone's terrible when they start out it's so just, how did um, you keep going how did you have the self-belief to <laughs> Continue. I don't think it was so much self belief. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have the self belief. Uh, Dave was. I was. I was gonna. Um, I was gonna quit. Like it was the trigger warning was my last ditch attempt. Like I didn't. Um, you know, I didn't make it public. I wasn't like this is my last go. <laughs> like I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do a Gatsby. But um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I really. It was that was my last ditch attempt, and uh, I. D- when I did it, the comedy festival, Melbourne Comedy Festival, um, I was I was looking, I was trying to pull out of the festival. Like I'd already paid my venue fee, and I was trying to work out how I could um, pay my rent. Uh, like I was, I was trying to pull out. I, I was just like, I'll just have to take that as a loss and just not do it because I was like, it doesn't make any sense. It's it's bonkers. It's you know, it won't work. And um, and why was it at that? Point. I mean, that's. I had to do it because I'd already paid the venue fee. I couldn't afford to not do it. <laughs> well, yeah, but why was like why at that point? What was it that had come to a head at that time? That what you know? What was different to two years earlier? Say. Or um. Years well. Uh, what was different? Uh, what, like, why did I do it? Why did I do no, the show? Or why, why did I? You, why was, was I not why doing was it? At it? that point, that you were thinking maybe this is me. Oh, I'd been I'd been thinking it for a long time. Like, I'd been trying. It, it, it was all. It was also like how, uh, whether or not I could actually. Um, exist within that that scene and if I just fundamentally wasn't um wasn't what 
wasn't what that audience wanted and, and wasn't what that scene wanted. I mean, I'd been working for, like, a really long time in comedy. When, like, last year, um, when I did Trigger Warning and then and thankful, like, thank God, didn't pull out and then won, um, uh, that was my 11th comedy festival. So, you know, I'd been working in, in comedy for 10 years without anyone noticing me at all. And I'd had to, like, I literally had to win the Barry Award, um, which is the best show at Melbourne Comedy Festival. I had I had to win the Barry in order to get an open mic spot. Before that, like a month before I did Trigger Warning at Melbourne, I, I, couldn't, get a, I couldn't get an open mic spot in Sydney. In a way that you think was unfair? Or was um, it, could, could you, were you doing stuff that w- I think wouldn't I can, have been appropriate for that room? Or yeah, you... I, I think it's like a lot of a lot of different things. I think it's like a, a bit of me not necessarily being appropriate for that room, those rooms. Also, um, not uh, being part of that world and, and not... And I also, like, I, I was doing other stuff as well. Like, I am, you know, like I say, like, I love the audience. I love performing. I love... Um, the whole thing of it. So I was trying to find a, a way to, you know, stalk the audience in any possible way that I could. <laughs> I found an in, but and Guys, <laughs> it was like, can I, uh, how about here? Like I'm just popping up a different way. So, um, I couldn't, I couldn't get a lot of stage. I couldn't get, I went to New York, um, uh, because years and years ago I went to New York so that I could just get stage time, uh, cause I couldn't get it in Australia. Um, but but I also you know I did theatre and uh, a lot of what I do is is theatre and started my own nights and um, did like you know cabaret type of art nights and stuff like that so it it was just um, never quite clicked with comedy but uh, so I hadn't done a comedy festival show in the festival like in the hub and right so. Uh, Trigger warning was me actually putting myself back in there after a few years of just being like, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm out. And so you are currently also appearing in Wild Boar with a feminist clown supergroup of yourself. <laughs> it's like we're saying it's like the Avengers. Yeah. Um, it's uh, um, uh, Adrian Truscott, who's been on this show before, mm-hmm. Adrian, and uh, Ursula Martinez, who I've seen for years in La Clique La Soiree, mm-hmm. and yourself. So, talk to me about how that started. Because um, that was one of those things. As soon as I saw that, I was like, "What? That's happening?" <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's such a it's such a it's such an obvious idea after the fact. You're like, "Of course." Yeah. Um, it was sort of suggested by other people that we like that we worked together and we knew each other through. It sort of happened organically over a couple of years, and then it came out of conversations, and um, and then producers got on board. And, okay, and yeah. is that is that the first show you've made together? Yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that show. Uh, like what? What is it? Your yeah. description. Um, it's ba- well, we were. It came from conversations where we were talking about, you know, we were at festivals and things, talking about reviews and the sort of stuff that you do. You talk about, and um, we d- decided we wanted to work together. And then we were like, oh, what's the most? We decided that what we wanted to do was like just something really audacious. And then we were like, oh, what's the most fucked thing you could do? And we were like, oh, we could just make a show about like all bad, our bad reviews. And we were like, oh, that's a terrible idea. And so once we <laughs> realized that, then we also realized we had to do it 
Then, uh, let, let's just stay with that for a second because that, that, <laughs> that instinct is sort of nine tenths of it I think the idea of like the, A have an idea that's really fucked yeah and then realize that, that moment when you go well we have to do that yeah now. yeah just to just I don't I, I don't know quite what I'm asking but I think like that is the crux of the whole thing yeah. in all three of you that idea that I've thought of that now. Yeah, I have, I have to. to do it. That it's kind of a rejection of the norm or a, a yeah. celebration of fuck it or what? What is it? Yeah, about? I think, and it's in all of our solo stuff and mine as well. I mean, I think that's the thing of like, why, why do I do Dave or why do you do that? It's like, oh, because it, I, I thought of it, and then was like, oh, you can't do that. It's like, well, then I'd better do it. I've, I have to. It's sort of, it is a bit of a fuck it, and it's also like as. Performers and, you know, artists or whatever, um, I think the realisation that you can do whatever the fuck you want is really, is the point, actually. And and it's not just for yourself, it's actually for, like, opening up opening up possibility for, for an audience and, and for what they're, what they're seeing as well. Like, you don't just want to see someone do something that they've seen someone else do. You you want them to like do something you've never seen before. So if you think of something that you're like, oh, you, you can't. I've never. Oh, oh no, that won't work. Well, you have to you have to do it. You have to check if it's going to work or not. It might not work, but we. It was also so the original thing was um oh uh was uh we'll talk about our reviews and then we were like talking about and you know working on it we did a couple of residencies um and we were in new york and um we were about to start rehearsal and uh, we were around adrian's kitchen table and ursula was just like i just feel like um it's just so cerebral like it's just really um it's just like we're talking out of our asses and we can't do that unless we actually talk out of our asses and then we all just went (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) and then we were just like oh shit oh no and then yeah and then that's where that came from we're like imagine if we just started the show by like just an ass on a table just talking and that's for the listener in the show we read all terrible reviews not all ours but um yeah just bad reviews of some good some bad shows through our asses it's a funny way to start a show it's a fantastic show it's a real i mean it's the amount of jokes in the show about the fact it's going to last eight hours and you can feel (laughs) the audience go oh Oh, no (laughs) um is there, if you came from a place a, a year or two ago with thinking about packing it in and then suddenly being celebrated and yeah. having more opportunities, um, is there, do you feel a pressure, like either a financial pressure or an artistic pressure to, what kind of pressures are you under? Um, I mean, there's always sort of, there's always pressure. It sort of, it depends on what you're doing at the time. I mean, at the moment I'm thinking about, well, I can't do another Dave show. So comedy wise, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to like fully pack it in. I was just like, I'm not sure if I make sense in a comedy context. Yeah. And then, uh, fortunately something clicked and it made sense. Uh, I still would have kept doing theater and writing and, and performing in other contexts. Uh, but in comedy now, because I've done Dave for a while and that's been successful and um, I have this platform a little bit, 
I still have a pretty small platform. Um, I can't do him anymore. I, I, I have to sort of put my money where my mouth is. And the next challenge for me is doing a, a show as myself, really, as I have to. I, I thought it. I, I'm not allowed to not. So that's, that's the next. And that's a pressure as well because – but it's, it's kind of nice because if, if it fails, I fail. But um, I've also proven my point. <laughs> Which, which <laughs> women aren't funny. <laughs> if I do a show as myself and everyone's like, oh, we like Dave better, well. <laughs> Is there, I suppose, to wrap up then, that I suppose what I'm asking is that that pressure to create something new again and you do have a platform and you do have certainly everyone that stood up on the show <laughs> I came to see it we're all coming back <laughs> and I wonder if you feel a pressure from us that it needs to be heroic do you know what I mean that it needs to be it needs to because be you're, because <laughs> that show Trigger Warning was so I don't even know what the word is but you know what I mean it was so like on the nose got it that's what it is yeah. risks blood Flipping between characters, the whole shebang, taking subjects that can't be made funny and making them funny and having an audience howling. Yeah. Like, do you feel you need to top that? Do you feel you need to top the legacy of that? Uh, in a way, yeah. But I also am trying to... I mean, it's... Yeah, it's... Uh, when I... When I do the next show, I'll be a mess. Uh, I think that's that's the pressure. It's not like financial or real. It's just the it's the emotion that goes into trying to like make something that's good. Really, it's it's all ego. Um, but and and fear of failure. Uh, I I won't make a show that's like Trigger Warning for a while. Like I don't have that was a build up of like a lot of stuff that I had to say. I don't have the same stuff to say anymore. I've always said it in that. Um, so the next challenge for me, and, and what I kind of want to do is to just enjoy the privilege of being allowed to be on stage and make jokes. Like that feels to me like also like the most political thing to do is to just sort of not have to be political as well. It's like, does every trans artist have to make a show about being trans? Does every woman have to do like a fucking show about feminism? Like it's no, you just you want to just be perceived as a, a human being on stage, and 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 that's my next challenge is just to be a person and not have to be like ah! <laughs> bleeding and vomiting and stuff. Yeah, so that's that's the next. It's. It won't top it. It won't. It's not going to be. It's not going to be that same frequency of that show. That trigger warning. Like, I'm destroyed after I do it as well. Like I just can't. Um, I can't muster that kind of strength. But we'll see. Maybe I can do a show that's relaxed. And finally, then, when you get stuck in your process, when you're creating stuff and gets and gets stuck, or can't get past the next thing what's what strategies do you have to cope with that what have you learned in the last 15 years of doing comedy that you feel you've got in your tool belt ready for when that problem occurs again oh, in, the God. in the next year um i think it's just keep working just just to keep keep moving really because it's i mean yeah if you get I mean, it's like mud, really. If you get stuck, where you can't just stand there, you'll just sink. 
just gonna keep moving. Just keep moving forward. I think that's the thing. It's like you can get really caught up in the sort of the ego of it and the emotion of it. And I think that uh, trying to move as far away from any uh, ego is really important. I think trying not to get uh, or, or giving yourself just a little bit of space but drawing a line under it as well, like just to to kind of get over yourself really, just like take your hand off it and – uh, and and work just to go like there's it, it no problem that has um, not been solved by con- continuing to work. So anything I mean you can just mull over any problem really forever. It doesn't it's not going to go away until you fix it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> Some fascinating stuff there from Zoe. Thank you so much to Zoe for coming on the show. I mean, there's loads to think about there. I hope you go and ruminate about some of those things. This episode was, of course, recorded uh, during the Edinburgh Festival. Um, so some certain cultural things may have changed since, since then. So I think it's important to kind of place this in, in the time in which it was recorded. Um, so thanks to Zoe. Thanks to the Place Hotel. If you want to check out Zoe Coombs-Mars' work, you can do that at her website. Uh, I believe her show Wild Boars, this incredible feminist supergroup of Zoe, uh, Ursula Martinez and Adrian Truscott are doing an incredible show. You really, if you get the chance to see Wild Boar, I think that is touring, uh, if not perpetually, then certainly for a while longer. So do check that out. Um, that's all the, from the show just now. Uh, donate and find information at the tour and all of the freebie stuff you can get at comedianscomedian.com. I'm recording this in a car. I'll, I'll tell you all about that. Uh, in the post apple in fact thanks for listening and if you'd like to stick around please do but for now that concludes the podcast so I'm in my car I'm in Luton about to do a gig here and then uh, travel back home after hell week hell week this year has been really fun and I should say it was only three shows Uh, there are a couple of people who said they were planning to come in the second half of hell week the second half of hell week consists of a show and a half you know uh, hell week doesn't uh, come it doesn't produce a lot of cash so uh, so I have to work I've got to do real big gigs for money the rest of the time um but what a three days it was i i there's a couple of times when i wanted to jump onto this little recording device and kind of sew together a little diary for you because i thought it might be interesting to to look back on some of the uh, springing and yawning and yawing and chasming uh, changes in my mental state as i attempted you know round two year two of this uh, this technique of just writing all day and performing all night and doing it again and doing it again doing it again um so here's what we went through here am i there is some very positive stuff there's a good bit about pan chocolat i mentioned it on the facebook group i took a picture of a, a, a the 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 inside back cover of my notebook where i'd made a list of all of the bits that worked from night two and that hadn't worked and stuff that hadn't worked but i was excited about and stuff that hadn't worked and i wasn't excited about um so if you join the facebook group you can see that but i one of the things was pan chocolat and someone commented underneath it oh i always loved uh, henry packer's bit about pan chocolat and immediately i was sent to paroxysms of dismay going no that's the only bit that definitely works don't tell me and then of course i remembered if packer's got a bit on pan chocolat so then i was like i don't want to know i don't want to go and look at it because obviously i want to make sure i don't tread on the toes of it but oh god what an incredible writer henry packer is why haven't i got him on the show yet let's get on that um 
and, and so you you kind of you hear about it and you're like no I don't I don't but I also do want I want to hear it so that I can make sure I'm completely separate from it and uh, and so I, I panicked and then the person who uh, who posted that very kindly deleted the comment and said I'm so sorry I didn't mean to to throw you which is very nice now that I am cultivating the kind of people as an audience as a listenership you you people people just like you who uh, who would <laughs> who would try to have some regard for my own mental health during the process so thank you for posting that and indeed deleting that whoever that was it was unnecessary but kind of you um and uh so i went through these three hours the third one was the hardest that was the wednesday that was at top secret and thank you to a couple of comcom fans who came along to that that was the much that was a, a much different a much smaller proportion of fans of my work to random people who were there to see a free thing and as a result a harder gig and as a result a more useful gig and uh, i tell you what mate the pan of chocolate has definitely got legs um and and i'm pleased to report i did go back and watch uh, packer's bit and it's nothing like it of course it's not because we're completely different people and that even in itself that mate that reflects i think my mental state throughout elements of the writing process where i'm just at the stage now of like generate stuff generate stuff try and get to the bottom of what i'm thinking try and am i thinking anything this is the narrative for me this year have i got another show in me have i got another one in me i've done four in a row and there was a year off and before that i did three in a row that's a lot of shows particularly when your shows are i mean it's hard for everyone to keep bashing out a show every year as we frequently discuss with american comics on this show um but equally the type of comedy that i do is i try to solve a problem i try and expose whatever i'm wrestling with internally and i've done a lot of wrestling the last three years and um and so to think, is there anything that I'm still wrestling with? So I was panicking. And also part of me, there's another sort of strand to this, which says, well, do I want to do the same thing again? Or maybe maybe it's time to freshen up and not do something that I'm wrestling with. I've tried that in previous years. And I always end up trying to work out a thing. Um, as you will hear if you listen to any of my back catalogue, which is available now or indeed soon. But I... Uh, I I was in this panicky state. Can I do it again? And I think for me, the value of Hell Week this year was in reminding me that, of course, I can do it again. I got it. You got. I always remember that interview with uh, Stephen Grant. Do you remember that one? Years ago now. Uh, brilliant comic Stephen Grant was talking about mathematically how you can never run out of stuff because there are there's, just, there's so many, <laughs> even just objects, there's so many objects in the world you could talk about. There's so many feelings, there's so many events you could talk about. And each one of them is multiplied by the way in which you can talk about it, the your approach to it, the angle by which you talk about it, the premise, any two objects smashed together create you know just an enormous amount of possibility but equally it's very hard to remember that when you're back to square one and looking at the bit of paper and and thinking hmm funny i tell you what this will be this will be fun uh, let's just have a quick look and i I'll, I'll, I'll do this and then i'll sign off but this is uh, quite interesting i mentioned my notebook earlier on w- one of my favorite productivity tips or a kind of mental health and creativity tip pete suggested ages ago i don't even he he claims not to remember suggesting this, but I'm sure he did. Maybe it was something I hacked out of a hack that he was hacking about something else. But one of the things I, I occasionally say to people when they email me for advice on their own writing is I find it incredibly useful to keep a series of little tally charts at the back of my notebook, each with a little uh, title, 
and the title refers to a negative thought that I'm having about my own process, right? So every time you have that negative thought, rather than fixating on it and having it send you down a sort of spiral of self-doubt and <laughs> crippling, <laughs> crippling doubt, um, instead you simply go to the back, find the relevant heading and put a little tally mark in there. Here are the tally marks. There's nine of them. Here are the tally marks. Here's number one. So these are things that I habitually think during the process and i'm pleased to say that they've got they've all got less than five tally marks on them so they aren't coming up as much as they used to do before i started this process which is the point of the process here we go number one more baby stuff (laughs) that's a thing i'm frequently thinking number two no big life events last couple of shows big life events engagement wedding baby moving you know lots of stuff now i'm like no big life events uh, can't write in the same place twice. This is a little superstition. If I've had a good writing session in one caf or office or space, I can't go there the next day because that would break the magic somehow. Insane. Uh, number four, I have to be in the zone and I just can't find it today. That is crucial to remember that that's bullshit because you have to break... You, I mean, that's the point of this exercise. You have to break those superstitions there is no zone, guys. There's no industry, no prizes, no reviews, and no zone. So sometimes if you're sleepy, write sleepy jokes. If you don't feel you're in the zone, write non-zone jokes. Just keep writing. The fifth thing, I don't think anything. <laughs> I don't think anything. The sixth one, I've got nothing left after four years. Well, this is exactly it, you know. I've got nothing left. And of course, we know that's not true, but it still feels like it sometimes. Uh, six, there's nothing... Oh, that was six. Seven, there's nothing in my life I haven't talked about already. That's absolutely preposterous. Besides, it doesn't have to be about my life. So, there it is. Uh, number eight, this is going to be a bad one. That is, that's quite an interesting wobble that I've had in the past, but this time, because my most recent show, Like I Mean It, the one I'm touring in spring next year... It is, I think, it's head and shoulders my best show. I love doing it. I love creating. I love performing it. And um, and after that, there's this thing of like, well, that was the good one, and probably this is going to be a bad one. It's so easy to get trapped in that loop. And finally, I'm not getting better. This is just more. Oh, my God. What a sophisticated stick with which to beat oneself. And I think that's like, that's the flip side. That's me managing to find a negative in having achieved the writing of seven hours of comedy, which is something I could never have imagined doing when I started. You know, when you first put your first five or ten minutes together and you see someone do an hour and you think, how is that possible? I've done seven. I've done seven hours. I'm proud of all of them to some extent, some of them very much so. And yet I have, like, the, the, the negative voices have managed to to weld that into a big metal bat with which to hit myself and the idea is, I'm not getting better, this is just more. I mean, yeah, you should definitely keep one eye on on the f- on wanting to progress, wanting to deepen and enrich your process and try new things and all the rest of it. But it's okay for it to be more because that you know, the 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 ear of the audience is a hungry mouth. That's not gonna catch on, is it? <laughs> but you know, it, the circuit devours material. The, the touring devours material. You do a thing and that's done and you've got to move on. There has to be more. So to berate myself, oh, I'm not getting better, this is just more. And, and what else gives the lie to that is it's indubitably getting better. It's absolutely getting better. So there we go. This, listen, um, that is a little thing at the end of Hell Week 
uh, just if you are working on any kind of and of course this is relevant to anything if you're if you're working on any sort of practice yourself any kind of creative art whether it be painting pottery cakes or martial arts i don't know or putting things in a van or whatever it is you can definitely spend a lot of time dragging yourself down with self-doubt and some version of this technique might be applicable to you so those are mine i've shared mine should we share them should we do a little twitter sharesies you can if you like i haven't got a hashtag for it but i think that that there we go we might, we might learn something from that. Maybe you recognise some of those. Maybe you're like, oh, yeah, I do that one. I do that one. I've got nothing left. I don't think anything. This is going to be a bad one. Oh, imagine. I remember thinking in the very first interview I did with Sarah Millican, like nearly five years ago, if not five years ago, um, I'm sure some part of that was a conversation where she was saying, it's, it's and this is her saying this is a very talented comic, but even... Even someone as talented and successful and provably excellent as Sarah was saying, yeah, you know, it's harder for us because we're not talented. We have to work. And I, I do reflect on that sometimes. And I also think sometimes there are people out there who really believe in themselves. Oh, it's harder for the rest of us. <laughs> imagine, imagine, imagine what I could achieve if I could only believe in myself. Well, maybe we're getting there. Maybe we're getting there a little bit more, thanks to this system. That that got very wittery towards the end, and I can only apologise. But um, <laughs> I'll start a new one. Number 10, wittering. Tick. Speak to you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.